right. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. I would also like to put my plug in for uh, for the retreat. Um, one, I, one, I know that we're going to have talent show again this year. Um, we had our first one last year, and it was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, David, I know Gittens is already starting to kind of put stuff together for that. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward to singing what you bring because you brought some great stuff last year. And I'm sure it's just going to get better this year. Um, if you haven't ever been to the All Church Retreat, it is worth your time. Um, boy, the, the setting is amazing. The times are amazing. Our speaker this year is going to be Steve Whitmer. I've had a few conversations with him on the phone. A few of you know who he is. And uh, um, it is going to be a very, very good time. So I hope that you'll be able to block out that time um, on April 13th through 15th. Um, I would even encourage you, if you've already got plans, look at clearing your calendar. Because it is definitely, you will not walk away from that weekend saying, oh, gosh, I could have done something better than my, with my time than that. Uh, it, is, it is really fantastic. So I hope that you will join us and invite people to come with you. Um, we love maxing out that camp. It is really good. A lot of fun. So this week seems like as good as any week uh, to let you know that I am back in school again. I know. I know. It's like an obsession or a sickness or something. I don't know. Some people take up skydiving. My particular adopted insanity is postgraduate work, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I like learning things, and I like studying, and, and I, I think learning makes me a better minister, um, honestly. Uh, it gives me fresh perspective. It gives me new practical methods, new tools, new ideas. Um, example, I am working through a church history class right now, and we're working through the 17th and 18th century, which is looking at Europe during those times. And, and you go like, what could you learn from that that would be applicable to your current situation? Um, you know, the funny thing is, is if you're looking at Europe during those times, it is basically one big argument that occasionally turns into armed conflict. I'm not saying that that is our church. I'm just saying that that's something that's interesting that you can look at um, at all. But it's, it's pretty much, that's pretty much the synopsis of the entire 200 years of the 17th and 18th century about Christianity in Europe. One large argument that occasionally breaks forth into armed conflict. Um, and, uh, and I've learned some interesting things out of that with some good practical applications. For example, I have learned that the postmodern religious argument, which usually takes place in the anonymity of social media, has a set format of someone saying their opinion and then the entire discussion degenerate into like calling each other's names and insulting each other's moms and, and stuff like that. That's basically how a religious argument works now online. Um, that has nothing on the behavior of religious arguments in 18th century Europe. Would you like to know more? Of course you do. Of course you do, okay? Here are some examples of how to solve a religious argument during that period of time. One, throw the offensive party or parties from a third-story window down to the street level. In order to not be guilty of murder, throw them in the direction of a pile of garbage or manure, depending on who's telling the story, so that it will cushion their fall. That's one, okay? Two, fill up a bunch of barrels, wine barrels, with gunpowder and smuggle them into the catacombs under the meeting hall that your opponents are in with the intent to blow them all sky high while they're meeting. Note, be careful which mistress you tell this plan to, otherwise it may not work out. 
Three, this is like one of my favorites, okay? Take the offending party and execute them publicly. Hang on. Don't stop there. After executing them, burn their body to ash. Wait, don't stop there. Because then after you have burned them to ash, just to make a statement, load their ashes into a cannon and fire them from a cannon toward Poland. Because that's where they got those unorthodox ideas from in the first place, and now you're sending them back from whence they came. I love history. Okay? I still don't recommend, like, arguing on Reddit, but I mean, like, like seriously, it's amazing stuff. All right? And you're going, Travis, what does that have to do with sermon? What does that have to do with Psalm 146? All of those things I talked about are real plans and real actions by real people who are trying to order their world as they saw fit. All of them in the name of God. Hmm. And that sounds so crazy to us, but if history teaches us anything, it's that we repeat ourselves. We don't have to look very, very far back or very, very far away from us making crazy decisions in the name of God, whichever God that happens to be, to try and order our world in a way we think it should be ordered. It's really easy to push that idea out at a government regime or a large corporation or a figurehead of some type, but you don't have to be a monarch like James I or Louis XIV believing in rule by divine right and ordering an entire country around your desires. You don't have to be somebody like that to have this tendency. The desire to master our reality is something that every single one of us has to come to terms with. We all have to choose whose world we live in and who we are in that world. And for all of us, even followers of Jesus, there is a tendency to overreach in our understanding and in our practice of life. It's that, it's that stiff-neckedness that we talked about last week out of Exodus 34. That's not just Israel's problem back then. It's a common facet of humanity. We think we're bigger than we are. And we reach higher than we should. And yet, in the middle of this, God remains faithful to his invitation. He keeps leaving the opportunity open for us to experience and live out of his reality, his identity for us. And as we are talking about echoes of Easter in the Old Testament, looking at how this idea of 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 the cross and the grave and the resurrection and the, and the restoration of humanity is not just something that starts with Jesus, but it's something that's been woven into the thread of the entire Bible. We have to realize that this is a common facet, is, is, is we are always trying to be king while the king is trying to let us, let him be king. The psalm that we read this morning, 146, it's, it's, it's a great example of this. I, I touched on this idea last week of how memorizing scripture is so important because it becomes my roadmap to reality about who Jesus is and what his purposes are when I am inevitably getting assaulted by a world that is wanting to confuse those things in me. But let's be real. I bet, it is, I bet you think it is really hard to memorize scripture. 
You know what's not hard to memorize? Song lyrics. Song lyrics are not hard to memorize. I have ones that I should totally not repeat that are from like sixth grade. Okay, do you want me to quote all of Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar on Me? I can do it. I will not. Okay. We've all got songs stuck in our heads. Okay. Bible classes, television jingles. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, right? Like, they're there. They stick in there and they stay. And here's the thing. God knows this. Israel knows this. And that's why they have a national songbook that outlines who God is, who they are, how they're supposed to relate to him, and what they have to remember when their experience of life isn't matching God's reality. They come back from the exile and they go, who are we? We don't really remember who we are anymore. We don't have the temple anymore. We don't have the king anymore. We're not even really sure that we have the land anymore. Who are we? When we don't have those things anymore, when God's pulled things out of our foundation, what's left? And they go, what are our songs? What are, what are our songs about who God is and who we are and what his world is like and who we are in his world and what we're supposed to do when, our, when, when the way that we see the world doesn't match the way that God's reality is? Who are we again? And that's what the Psalms is. That is what this book is. And, and as I am singing, I am taught. That's, that's the whole point of the book of Psalms. As I sing, I am taught. As I carry the lyrics with me, I am reminded. As I am reminded, I am allowed to push back into God's reality again. As I push into that reality, I am changed again. The psalm that we read, like many others, is a Bible lesson that I sing. It's supposed to be sung not just in the church house, it's supposed to be sung in my heart's home because that's where God does the work that he intends to do is when these are not songs that we sing. When I, when I walk out and this is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross, you would lay down your life, that I would be set free. Jesus, I sing for all that you have done for me. That matters here, but that matters so much more on Tuesday. When grace has to flow out of me to my coworker or my kid or my spouse or my whatever. Or that person who cut me off in traffic or, or whoever. Okay? That is when the Psalms find their home. That is when scripture finds its home. That's where, as I sing, I am taught. And that's how God designed us. And that's where the work that God intends to do is done. The particular lesson in this Psalm is one part identity and one part trust. And those two ideas are connected because who I am helps determine who and what I trust. And the lesson simply is there is a right and a wrong way to navigate fear and lack and need. There's a right way to go through that, and there's a wrong way to go through that. But it's not just that. This psalm is also a celebration of who God is. If you look at, if you look at Psalm 146, it's the first of the last five psalms in the book. The final five hallelujah psalms. It basically sums up the entire book. 
They're the hymns of the final stanza, the when it's all said and done songs that strengthen our resolve and they bring the clarity that we cry out for and they teach us how to praise in any circumstance. They're the ones that challenge me to ask, are the words of God's songs in my mouth also training in my eyes and my heart and my hands? That's what they do. That's what hymns do. And this psalm starts out with this commitment to praise God continually throughout the course of my life. It's imperative. And that imperative is is a response to the previous psalm that ends with that same commitment to lifelong praise regardless of circumstance. But then it gives a reason for that praise. And here's what it says. God is a trustworthy place for my affections. God is a trustworthy place for my devotion. God is a trustworthy place for my effort. God is a trustworthy place for my hope. Other places, other people, other voices are not. This word princes here talks about at the beginning in in verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men that cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. That word princes kind of may throw us a bit. It seems kind of ancient or outmoded. Okay, but you got to understand, princes are another word in the scriptures for representatives of power and influence that are outside of God who is king. There may be other princes, but there's only one king. There may be other voices, but there's only one voice. And so really, what the psalmist is saying here is, you can't put your trust in the other voices of influence that you encounter, no matter how attractive they seem to you. They are not worthy of your trust because they can't last. They aren't eternal. They may go for a while, They may get a real head of steam. They may look like they're going somewhere, and then it's just going to drop off. Disaster may come, the unexpected may come, but let me tell you what will definitely come is that as the people that foment those plans go into the ground, so will those plans. There's a great play on words here, okay? The word for human and the word for dirt in Hebrew are basically almost the exact same word. Okay, human, Adam, ground, Adama. The power that comes from the Adam always ends up in the Adama. Because that's where their common roots are. They start there, always, they end there, always, no exceptions. But God is not of the ground. He made the ground, (laughs) He made the depths. He made the sky. He made everything else. And he's going to be around long after every intention that the Adam has had cycles back into the Adama. And yet God refuses to be distant or separate from these temporary small beings and these temporary yet very real needs and fears that we have. He could say, you know what, I made this thing, I'm above this thing, I'm going to be around long after this century or this millennia is gone, I'm just going to kind of sit above it and let it roll. 
But God doesn't do that. God's never done that. God has always been the God who refuses to, even though he is high and lifted up, he refuses to stay high and lifted up. He is the one who moves down into where we are. And that's exactly what, what, what follows in this passage. The things that make God so trustworthy are his character and his track record in dealing with these little dirt creatures, you and me. Okay? It's the fact that he doesn't hold himself way up high above the ground because he's made us. Even though we're of the ground, he's made us. And he pours so much affection and energy and priority into you and me. He always has. And he continues to do so. And the psalmist sings of these ten characteristics of God's faithfulness. These really intimate characteristics. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets free the imprisoned. He opens up the eyes that are blind. He lifts up those who are weighed down, bowed over is what the what it says. He loves the righteous. He protects the stranger and the outcast. He is the upholder, the patron even of the orphan and the widow. He's the one that represents the ones that have no one to represent them. And then it adds on the other, the other characteristic of God's faithfulness. And he brings the plans of the wicked to ruin. And there are two things that I think about when I hear this list of attributes. First, I cannot hear these without being transported to Jesus. Standing in a synagogue, reading these same promises from the scroll of Isaiah, and then saying, today this scripture has been made full in your hearing. Jesus as the son takes all of these faithful characteristics of the father and they are his gospel to you and me. They are his good news. But even more than them being his good news, they are his disciple calling for you and me. We lean so heavily on Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Everybody's standing around and they go, okay, you're, you're obviously ascending now. What do we do? And he goes, I want you to go. And as you go, I want you to make disciples. Wherever it is you go, I want you to make disciples. And I'll be with you as you go and make disciples. And we go, great, okay, we got to go make disciples. And, and Jesus wants us to make disciples as we go. Doesn't matter who. We want to go make disciples and he'll be with us. And then I go, okay, what does a disciple look like? And we go, that's a fantastic question. I don't know. He didn't say. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. What is his gospel message? Executing justice for the oppressed. Giving food to the hungry. Setting free those who are imprisoned, opening up eyes that are blind, lifting up those who are bowed over by the weight of life, loving the righteous, protecting the stranger and the outcast, being the upholder, the patron of the orphan and the widow, and frustrating the plans of the wicked. Do you want to know what being a disciple looks like? There it is, right there. Right there, from Jesus' lips. 
from the psalmist's lips, from Isaiah's lips, and from Jesus standing in the synagogue. Here's what the good news looks like. If I am a disciple, I have received that good news into my life, and I am spreading that good news to everybody else. And when they go, wow, that's good news, we go, yeah, you want to come do the good news with me? Let's go do the good news together. And you can tell other people about the good news. You can go do this too. This is really not a very complicated plan that Jesus has here. It's kind of costly. Definitely looks different. You're going to catch some flack for living this way. Don't get me wrong. But it's not complicated to know what a disciple is. It is taking on God's faithfulness and living out of that God's faithfulness and giving out his faithfulness to everyone around us. You have to both love these and be these, not only to be a disciple, but to be a recipient of the gospel. And that brings me to my next thought. I don't often think of myself in these terms that Jesus describes, that Isaiah describes, that the psalmist describes. I don't really identify with these labels very quickly. Oppressed, hungry, imprisoned, blind, bowed down, weighed down, stranger, outcast, orphan, widow. These things don't really describe my situation and my experience of existence very often. And even more, the terms righteous and wicked seem a bit out of place in here, don't they? Those don't seem to fit with the rest of them. I always thought that those were, you know, like doing things or not doing things. I don't know where those fit. And even more, what does all that I've been talking about have to do with Easter? What does this have to do with the resurrection? Dead things coming to life again. Here we go. If I'm going to start unraveling all this, if I'm going to start attacking these questions, I've got to reorient my understanding of what it means to be righteous and what it means to be wicked. And this is not very different than the challenge that Jesus was offering to those he encountered because they had different definitions of righteous and wicked too. Very, very distorted from God's viewpoint. We like to think of these terms as associated with actions, especially individual action. Sometimes I think even more on individual action than the Pharisees of Jesus' day, more than they did. See, here's what I think righteousness, here's what I'm tempted to think righteousness is, is I believe the correct things, I act correctly out of those beliefs, therefore I am righteous. I know the stuff, I do the stuff, I'm righteous. I don't know the stuff, I don't do the stuff, I'm not righteous. Okay, does that, that sound kind of familiar to you? This is the part where you either nod head or shake head, okay? Interactive sermon. All right, good. Just making sure you're tracking with me. We are an hour early. Some of you still think we're in Bible class. It's okay. All right. So it's either I am right in my thinking, I'm right in my action, I'm righteous, or I'm twisted in my thinking, I'm twisted in my action, I am unrighteous, I'm wicked. And we usually go a step further, and then righteous usually applies to me, and wicked usually applies to someone else. Okay, but that's a completely other sermon entirely. But this psalm, this inspired word, describes righteousness and wickedness differently. And it describes it in this way. 
The righteous is the one who commits and surrenders themselves to the praise and celebration of the reality that God is the singular source of life and security and wisdom and purpose. That's what it means to be righteous according to this psalm. Is that I have committed myself that God is the source. There is no other fount I know. For life, for security, for hope, for purpose. Okay? For wisdom, there is no other. Okay? Now, if that's what it means to be righteous, the wicked is the one who cannot or will not surrender to that reality. And they pattern their life as though God were not the singular source of life, security, wisdom, and purpose. Now, here's the, here's the trick. He might be a source of these things. He might even be a informative, a powerful source of these things. But he is not the source. And therefore, his influence and his authority are compromised, even if they're being acknowledged. And if I use this definition, it is very, very possible for me to sit in a pew every Sunday, volunteer for all kinds of stuff at church, know tons of Bible verses, and still be wicked. Jesus himself will say in the Sermon on the Mount that there's going to be all kinds of people that come with all of these huge litanies of good stuff that they did and good beliefs that they have. And Jesus' response is going to be, yeah, but I didn't know you. And that word know is about so much more than recognition. It's about right relationship. Jesus is in effect saying there, I was never allowed to be who I am to you. And you were never willing to accept who you were to me. So I don't really know you. And you don't really know me. How can you call me Lord? You don't know what that means. I was never the source. I was just a source. I was never the king. I was just a king. And there were a whole lot of other princes hanging around your life too. And the psalmist echoes this idea in saying, our plans, our human wisdom, our action, they're insufficient to curb the fear and promote the security and the true purpose that we need. And, and even if they can hold those things at bay our entire lives, even if they can make us believe that we've got it figured out our entire lives, they can't cross over death. Because they're all of the Adam. And they all go back to the Adama. Rulers forget this. Princes forget this. They think somehow with enough skill or effort or influence or affluence or leverage or just plain grit and might that they can make meaning of their lives and create a purpose and identity, maybe even salvation for themselves. Orphans and widows have no such delusions. They know they're in need. And they know that unless somebody greater comes to their aid, survival and salvation are out of reach, much less identity and purpose. And that is why God is the God of the orphan and the widow. God identifies and upholds the one group that knows that they need him. And he sets himself against the other 
that needs him but doesn't know that they need him or won't admit that they need him. It's not that God loves one and hates the other. It's that God's doing whatever he can to get everybody to realize who they are and who he is. And so when we are building ourselves up as rulers, God is going to frustrate that. Not because he's a jerk, but because he's given us a wake-up call. And the difficulty of this is we have forgotten which group we are. We act like we're princes. We carve out these little territories and empires, and we will use faith in God, faith in ourselves, whatever works to build the kingdom that we want. But God came to build his kingdom, a kingdom of orphans made children, a kingdom of widows made wives, people who are valuable not because we are self-made people, but because we are people who have thrown ourselves upon the promise of God's faithfulness. A faithfulness that has to include the resurrection because it's the only way that all this doesn't just fall apart and become dust and stay that way. Here's a challenge of the word for us today, church. When we are self-made people, ultimately that's all we're left with. I mean, sure, we can extend our influence and our creativity and effort and everything we have to try and fashion our existence but we will all hit the end of ourselves eventually. If you are building your marriage by yourself, evidently that's all you got to keep it together. If you are a self-made parent, eventually that's all you have access to, and it is overwhelming. If you are making your career or your income or your retirement or your plans or your purpose or whatever. I don't care what it is. If you're doing it by yourself, when it comes down to it, if God is just another tool in your belt to be a self-made person, when you're the builder of your life, that's all you're left with is you. And you don't last. Your strength doesn't last Your intelligence doesn't last. Your influence doesn't last. None of it lasts. It all goes back to the Adama. See, the funny thing is, is that's the good news, not the bad news. Because the good news is that when you realize that, you have one who is faithful to uphold you when you are at the end of yourself. So why waste all that time getting to the end of yourself? You don't have to go that far. You can shortcut the process right now and just fall on God. That's, that's, that's the good news. You don't have to exhaust yourself and then fall on the Savior. The Savior's like, hey, I'm here right now, actually. I'm ready for you right now, actually. I've been, I've been holding all this together all this time, actually. We don't have to wait for it to be good news when we're at the end of the rope. It can be good news now. I remember once reading the reflections of Henry Nowen about how he realized that he had to go to Latin America to learn how to say thank you again. He said, everywhere I went, there was this word, gracias. 
Gracias a Dios. Gracias, amigo. Grace to you. Or grace from you. Grace to and from God. Grace to you, the one that I love. That's what those words really mean. But they mean thank you. Everywhere I went, thanks, thanks, thanks be to God. Thanks be to you, the one that I love. In many of the families I visited, he said, nothing was certain, nothing was predictable, nothing was safe. Maybe there would be food tomorrow. Maybe there would be work tomorrow. Maybe there would be peace tomorrow. Maybe. Maybe not. And he said, what I claimed as a right, my friends in Bolivia and Peru received as a gift. What went by for me unnoticed became for them a celebration of God's faithfulness and a new occasion to say, thank you for your grace. What is praise, church? What is worship? It's not just the songs we sing here. It is, it is worship as life. What is that if not learning again and again the countercultural lesson of dependence and gratitude over and over again? We don't worship God just because he's exalted. We worship him because every time we do, we're proclaiming him as the source of life, the resurrection, the Easter, him and no other. We are engaging in lyrical self-abandonment, as one scholar put it. I love that idea. As the words come off my mouth, I am literally abandoning myself to God. How many praise songs have you sung like that? Ooh. It is the opposite of congratulating ourselves for crafting our own hollow salvation through work or luck and definitely consumption. Our God is the father of the orphan and the widow. And every time we praise him, we are, we are identifying with the celebration of him that is also a revelation of us and our inescapable need that cannot be satisfied any other way. We are the hungry. We are the imprisoned. We are the blind. We are the bowed down. We are the fatherless. We are the widow. We are no self-made prince. We are no self-made ruler. And the second we forget is the second that we abandon God's Easter resurrection for our cheap substitutes. And so we praise. And so we worship. And so we remember and we travel down that same road of Jesus that crucifies our lordship, buries our rights, and resurrects the true life of the child of God that we truly are. As the worship team comes up, I just want to close with a small verse from poet Brian Wren that I think sums this up so well. Just hear these words. We are not our own. Earth forms us, human leaves on the Father's growing vine. Fruit of many generations, seeds of life divine. Let us be a house of welcome. Living stone upholding living stone. Gladly showing all of our neighbors. We are not our own.